I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's happiest podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarellis. This is a show where we ask people, what's your story and what does it say about you? Uh, on the show today, we have internationally touring comedian and someone who's just released a stand-up special on Amazon Prime, Alice Fraser. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing so well. And I realize I skipped a whole bunch of other things that you've got going on, but I probably should have planned <laughs> beforehand with your bio. So do you, want to, you can flesh it out if you like and say all the other... Many other ways to describe what you're up to at the moment? Oh, well, I have some documentaries available on audible.com, including on meditation, habit change, wellness, and um, work-life balance. Those are available now. I also have a daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension. It's called The Last Post. I have a weekly podcast called Tea with Alice, where I talk about difficult ideas with interesting people, and I regularly appear as a co-host on The Bugle which is a satirical podcast. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I totally skipped a lot of the things. <laughs> I, got, I got some of it. So it's, You've got so much going, it's hard to keep track. That's the issue. I probably skipped some of the things, man. At the Perfect. moment, my way of dealing with stress is is to throw myself into work with short deadlines. I can't seem to do long deadlines, but I can do a it's due tomorrow. It's so how good is that? It, it's definitely like it's amazing how much you don't need food or sleep when the pressure's on. <laughs> like, because it's it's it, how annoying is it that uh, this might be a tangent, but maybe it's a personal thing. But I, it annoys me how different my attitude is in yeah towards the end versus like like if I could just live my life like I do when things are against the line, I'd be you know you'd be you'd be dreaming. You'd be ahead yeah. in everything. I feel that's what happens when uh, some for some people when they have children. Everything just reaches that heightened state of absolute sleepless urgency, and they become incredibly efficient. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've thought, I've thought exactly the same thing. Actually, I'm like, if you, you actually only have 15 minutes where you can do this thing, it is going to be one hell of a efficient 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that can apply to so many different things. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, that's cool. And I, and actually, I guess I don't know if this will come into the rest of the podcast. But I just got to know, just from my personal thing, as much as anything, uh, Amazon Prime special. How exciting is that? Uh, when did you film that? It was last year. I filmed it last year in November, so there's a story behind it as well, which is that, uh, do you know the author Neil Gaiman? I do. So I met him at a gig and we ended up uh, having tea together. He did my podcast oh, and uh, he showed me some of the rushes of Good Omens, which at that time he was um, he was show running. 
And I said, well, I feel like you've only seen me do a five-minute spot. Would you like to listen to my trilogy podcast, the Alice Fraser Trilogy? I knew he had a flight the next day. Um, and so he listened to the podcast. He called me about a week later and said, do you mind if I put your name forward to Amazon Prime? So What? It, That's and so now awesome. we're friends. So it was. I remember when I was a kid, I when I was about five, I got in a sword fight with my brother. It, it doesn't really matter the details of which. Uh, it was a pretend sword fight, but he he uh, hit me in the eye, and I ended up being in eye hospital for two months while he started school um, for the first time. And I I it's a sort of a legend in our family that he came to visit me before his first day at school and. I asked, what are you going to do at school? And he said, I'm going to meet all the children and turn them into friends. Huh. And That's very nice. I, feel, I felt like that. Uh, I feel like that sometimes in my life that I get to meet really interesting people and turn them into friends. I mean, it sounds like you've done that a bit then. And, and it led to an Amazon special as well. So that's like not bad. win-win. Yeah, no, I know. I don't know which one I'd prefer, actually. Friendship with Neil Gaiman or <laughs> an Amazon Prime special. And you got both. So... <laughs> That's impressive. What did, so was that on your Tea with Alice podcast you had him? Yes, yeah. He spoke about free speech. Oh, okay, right. That's interesting. So it was, it was good having him on. I was a little worried because obviously I, I don't necessarily book for fame. I'm, I'm not chasing big names for that podcast because in part what I want to do is talk about really tricky stuff, stuff where mm. you're not sure or you have mixed feelings or you've recently changed your mind or you think you should believe something but you don't. So very contentious, particularly in these times. Mm. Uh, I was worried that he would, you know, stick to a party line or or stay very bland on the podcast. But he he was very happy to talk about sort of the ups and downs and conflicts of free speech. And as somebody who is an advocate for free speech and who's had his books cancelled and banned um, by various governments and countries and you know organizations and and so on and so forth he spoke about that so it was great it was a great chat That's, yeah because i can see like obviously people be concerned about the the classic you know take out something said out of context and then put that up on twitter and be like this person said this or whatever and so people would hold off from saying those ideas yeah which is i think very it's it's a very discouraging thing because in the way that you know Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. The way that all mediums now are geared, at least all me public mediums, is is to discourage um, conditional thinking. If this, then that, then that, but maybe this. <laughs> you can't say that anymore. You can't say in these conditions, in these certain things, this is acceptable, but ordinarily it wouldn't be. Because all that people will hear is, this is acceptable, which let's say 99% of the time it's not. You can't, you can't have these complicated and balanced thoughts, which I think are so important to, you know, the dialectic process of human progress, intellectually I, I, speaking. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, 100% agree. Um, like, as in... And I think the people... It's so funny, the advocates for free speech so much of the time are the kind of people who actually maybe don't believe in it, except in the certain circumstances where they think it's required. Um, well, yes. And I'm such a, I, you know, I sort of brought myself up by thinking of, of myself as a, a free speech fundamentalist. You know, mm. I think that it's very important, even when speech can be harmful. I think the value of having that freedom 
from you know government censoring you or arresting you for saying the wrong things is you in balance overall in some total probably a better thing than not free speech being a right that's limited you know by things like in- incitement to violence of course mm. But that I realized like a couple of months ago and probably due to Tea with Alice and the conversations I was having there that my idea of free speech was this old Greek idea. You know, it's in the forum, it's an open space, everyone can say their piece and everyone listens. Whereas now with the way that the social media algorithms work, every individual person is living in a sort of an algorithmic equivalent of a propaganda state you're not speaking in the open square. No matter how much Facebook and Twitter might want to present themselves as the open market square, they are curators, they are algorithmic curators, they are publishers, they're a media format. They're giving you certain information and withholding certain information and bringing some forward and putting emphasis on others. So you're never actually speaking in that open square. So free speech becomes an entirely different discussion when you bring in that environment for speech yeah like as in uh how do you how do you mean exactly well so what i mean is you know this idea of free speech in the open square the thing that so appeals to me is that you can say what you want people can argue with you you can't be arrested for say criticizing the government that's one idea mm-hmm. and, and that is predicated on the idea that i'm there everyone else is there we're all listening to each other and everyone has a chance to speak exactly yeah 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 but online, although that, that illusion is presented by social media, that it's presented that you're shouting out into the open square, actually you're not. You're only talking to certain people and you're only getting information from certain people. So neither your speech nor your information is functionally free, even if it is sort of not legally regulated. So you're, you're, you're actually speaking in, in, as I said before, like the the algorithmic equivalent of a propaganda state. It's so limited, your speech is so limited that it actually can't be free. And and the thing that is valuable about free speech, which is the open forum, has been taken away without anyone's <laughs> consent or objection. Right. So you're actually talking about it like in terms of uh, how it's not, even though you wish that was the case, it's not possible anymore because of the, yeah, the siloing, yeah. I guess, of people into different groups. Well, it makes discussion of free speech different because you are no longer talking about the same thing. It's not performing the same function. Well, I guess like I would say, uh, this is me actually, we've got a wild tangent to go on already, but this is actually the funny thing I would actually (laughs) argue almost straight away that comes to my head is that I love the idea of the open forum as well, but you could say literally has never existed, even in the sense when there was an open forum, I bet you even then there was prestige, there was people who listened to more, there was people who weren't listened to at all. Oh yeah, people used to shout at the ocean to strengthen their voice so that they could be heard. (laughs) Well, that's exactly it, so what I mean there is like there's a censorship that goes on and that's what people aren't aware of so even though people think they're allowed to have free speech they may be not but not even because they're stifling you directly but it could be like just taking away your platform and like so that's I think a nuance which sometimes gets lost in the debate as well is that someone not being allowed to speak because they're not invited by students to a university isn't the same as not being allowed to speak on like anywhere and people sometimes confuse those two things yeah or being arrested for saying the wrong thing those are two things and those are being confused and that i think is a separate discussion again i think more like to go back to your your assertion that 
my idea of free speech in the open forum probably never existed. I agree mm. that it probably never existed, but I, as an ideal, you know, most things never really existed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> most things are just kind of a, an idea or a, or a goal. But yeah, I, yeah, do, yeah. I do think that there is value in those things, in having that as an ideal or as a goal or something that is worth pursuing because even though everything inevitably short, falls short of perfection, I don't think that that's a reason to – discard idealism oh definitely yeah no no 100 i'm i'm greek we we're all about the platonic forms <laughs> <laughs> love just trying to throw that out as whenever i can <laughs> i'm greek i get it don't worry it's fine i get we it i get it probably. i'm greek yeah, yeah i spend my mornings <laughs> wrestling and my evenings in philosophy exactly <laughs> yes and our afternoons well, let's not go there we're having a siesta usually <laughs> i'm sorry i'm interested to clarify here so you're saying the issue is that it doesn't exist in the modern era so any discussion which doesn't take that into account is already misleading is that kind of what you mean by that well that 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 the i think my um my instinctive urge to defend and protect free speech even when it's abhorrent if it's falling short of uh incitement to violence doesn't work in the world of the internet because it's predicated on an idea that everyone has access to the same broad spread of ideas, uh, which the internet presents you with the illusion that it does. But actually the way that algorithms work, it means that those kinds of speech can be deeply pernicious and damaging in a way that they couldn't be if they were done in the open forum because they would be shouted down. But if you're a young person, you go online, you read one article about uh, the red pill or incels or uh, the pressure on the economy provided by immigration or any mm. number of things. You could read one article and then you are fed article after article after article and you get an idea of what the discourse is, of what the doxa is, of what the shared um parameters of discussion are that is completely delusional so you're not actually having a free speech discussion it's not the kind of discussion that is is what the principle and the right to free speech was invented to protect you're being led down a path by extremely curated speech under mm. the illusion of free speech and because individuals, people, always position themselves by reference to uh, what is on either side of them. Mm. If they don't have a clear view of what is on either side of them, you can end up with people just off on different planets. Yeah, I mean, like, I know what you mean, uh, but I guess, like, because that doesn't – so I guess I'm trying to understand the implications or the real-world thing of what you're trying to discuss here because – on one side is free speech, which is me being able to say whatever I want, which is separate to uh, other information sources supplying to me whatever they want, I guess. Like that's kind of – do you know what I mean there? Like I'm trying to understand the like- – So they're, they're, they're of a piece, I would say. So the, the premise say, okay, um, you, you would say, hey, here's this great YouTube video about how vaccines are turning children autistic, mm -hmm. right? And I, as as kind of, let's say, previous Alice, would say, well, that's appalling. I disagree, but you have a right to post that, I guess, mm. because of free speech. 
Now, of course, you still have that right. It's a human right to, to free speech and to not be then arrested by the government or uh, punished or fined for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, fined, actually, a different question depending on if you're in a, a media forum. And this is one of the reasons why I think Facebook and Twitter should be treated as media forums because that's where you could find them for that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the point being that then my my initial feeling that even though I find that abhorrent, it should be allowed, has eroded in the face of the fact that we aren't we aren't living in in a world now where you can have free and open discussions, and so that person posting that link isn't part of of my conception of what free speech ought to be. So it's become more complicated and more more dirty. And I think maybe my instinct now or my intuition now would be that that should be taken down, that link. Right. Okay. So to go to that uh, level at least. Because I, I, I would say like, I agree with what you're saying, but I think like almost the individuals involved and like that's whack-a-mole sort of thing versus like what you first said, which is like, it should be treated as a media company or something like that. Cause I would say the structural issue is more so than like someone well, should be allowed course, to post I mean, that up. I mean, of course it's a, a yeah, structural yeah. issue. I think it ought to be taken down a, because you don't have to be published on a media company and mm. B, if you could regulate, you know, social media as publishers or as media, then they could be fined for presenting opinion as fact or for misinformation or for hate speech or for, you know, you you look at uh, various shock jocks that have been fined hundreds and thousands of dollars per instance of bad faith speech Mm. or advertising that wasn't disclosed or whatever it happens to be. And that is a, a disincentive for those companies to allow unresearched, uh, damaging, pernicious, malicious rhetoric to proliferate on their platforms. And especially be presented as like some sort of fact as well. Yeah, which um, yeah. it isn't. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I get – I seriously this at the moment, which is something I've like spoken with friends about. It's so funny you grow up and like at, when your kids' parents are like te- – like, or at least it's felt like this now. Maybe this is a modern issue. But when your young parents are like, oh, careful what you read and stuff like that, or people are trying to tell you stuff and they're worried about you and then you get older and then you look at your parents now who are on Facebook, like my Greek mum, and I'm just constantly being like, careful what you're reading and like she'll say <laughs> these theories and stuff and I'm like, oh, I just know. I'm pretty sure I've seen that spam somewhere and she'll say repeat stuff about corona or whatever and like i'm like ah i just know that you're getting this from some greek forum where it's very unreliable source of information yeah even even just something like a nutrition guideline in the way that they now have that on food of of how reliable a source might be i think that there should be pressures done uh, pressures put on put on on those companies and i by pressures i mean they should be fined if they don't um if they don't regulate their algorithms. Yeah, to some degree, to make it at least uh, with a focus on, see, it's so hard, the whole unbiased opinion, sort of the unbiased truth. Yeah, it's it's like... Well, it functions in in a way like miniature capitalism, in that unregulated capitalism leads to monopolistic unfairness Mm. and the sort of, it's this... um, it accumulates to the point where it becomes impossible to fight against. 
Yeah. So capitalism on the face of it is fair, but once it's been operating for a couple of minutes, someone has the money and then the more money attracts the more money and then the poorer people get poorer. So what you want is a regulatory counterbalance, whether it's something like a feudal system where you have mutual obligations to the people below you or a religion where you feel like you have spiritual obligations to the people who are less well off than you or but capitalism bare in tooth and nail is ends up with children in factories like that's yeah a fact it's not fi- it's not free and it's not fair beyond say the first 5 minutes where it might be yeah, and even like, where did that first five minutes come from? So like, it's just yeah. never, yeah. There was never a neutral point. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're saying the same thing can happen with this media um, because it's work working in the same sort of marketplace where all of a sudden certain players get more and more eyeballs and stuff. Well, that's how you end up with Joe Rogan getting paid a hundred million, whatever, to <laughs> join Spotify. Right? That's actually it's funny yeah. you're saying all this because even your tea with Alice, uh, it sounds a lot like. <laughs> I know it's not, uh, but you hear like on the certain uh, bits of YouTube, like uh, the Rubin Report or things like that, where it's like, oh, we're here to talk about dangerous ideas. Um, <laughs> do you know, I'm sure you probably know who Dave Rubin is. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm I'm not a provocateur um, in that way. I'm not uh, – I, I don't see that as my role. I think maybe I – yeah, I have other ideas about what function I perform in society, and it's not that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and even that, like, I would actually—that's not even what they're doing. That's not even a function because what you're doing is actually, yeah, I can understand that as a counter, as an argument and a dissecting of ideas which don't fit cleanly into one box, which people often like to put anything. Well, to encourage uncertainty, works. I think yeah, the world yeah. is a better place if there are more people who are uncertain, uncertainly expressing those uncertainties. I think that is a, a thing to encourage and to cultivate as much as possible. Mm. It's so hard though because <laughs> the statement, oh, I think this is possibly based on information, may go one of these ways with the most likelihood this way, but plenty of chance for it the other way <laughs> than someone else being like, screw that, this is right. And you're like, which one yeah. is people going to listen to? <laughs> I said this in Savage, which is the show that's on Amazon Prime, just because you know what you believe and I don't know what I believe doesn't make you right and me wrong. <laughs> that's... Very pithy way of putting that. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's never how it is, is it? Like, the less information people have sometimes, the more certain they are that they're correct. Which Yeah, I can guarantee almost everything is messier and more complicated than you think it is, and there are some people doing the right thing and a lot of people doing the wrong thing, and then most people just sort of muddling along without thinking about it too much. Mm, that That's definitely true as well. The, the amount of people that are like – I didn't care. Like, you know, I just I've got other stuff going on. But uh, so you did mention uh, just then the uh, Amazon special. So I probably like we don't have to go into too much detail since people can go watch it if they want to check it out. Um, <laughs> and also sometimes I like to use this show to like unpack stuff and see what people think. But with you, you've got so much of yourself you've put into that special, um, which is savage if anyone wants to look it up on Amazon Prime. I mean, do you want to give a quick summary of it right now, I guess, since – yeah, oh no, wrote. I don't know. It's it's probably it's <laughs> it's a show that I wrote when it was the only thing that I could do and when uh, Amazon asked me which special I'd like to do even though at the time I recorded it was then 5 years old. I'd done many other hours after it. Uh it's the one that's kind of my heart on a plate. 
Did, did you did you just uh, give old Neil a call? Be like, Gamo, I need some advice, bro. Yeah, I said I did. I actually I said, hey, uh, what? Which one should I do? Because I could do my most recent one, which is obviously funnier and more stand y and I have better writing skills and performance skills. But I still feel like that one is if if it's this is going to be a, a a place where people encounter my work for the first time. For the most part, the way that I build audiences, they come and then they come again. They've seen my work in person and then they see other things of mine. But this is like. This will be, by nature of being on a larger platform, people's introduction to me. So should I start at the beginning <laughs> or should I show them kind of my most modern jazz handsy thing? So we mm. talked about it and uh, I ended up deciding to do Savage. Right. So uh, just because it's maybe more stand-up is something else, I think right now, to especially considering how much there is out there, I think something more personal and stuff actually is a good way to get people to – the people that engage with you on this special, I feel like, are going to be the kind of people that will definitely be engaging with you in future. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. If they like me on that, they like me, um, which is always better. It's always better to be yourself in a job interview because you can say what you know will impress them and then they hire you and then they have to deal with you. Yeah, exactly. But if they start off there, if you actually start off with being like, this is this is the most like probably raw and like not straight stand up I'm going to get. And if you like it here, then you're going to like all this other stuff, which is more crowd pleasing in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Nice. yeah. yeah. Good, good chat you had with Neil. What's he like as a person? Is he a lovely dude? <laughs> he is a very sweet man. Yeah, he's very nice, not creepy, which is always pleasant when you meet an older man in the industry. Um, or is that any such industry, a common? Really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I don't have that experience personally. Really. <laughs> so weird, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's 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 a nice thing. It's not you know it's not wildly uncommon, but it is uncommon enough to be notable when somebody is just interested in you for your work and likes you as a person mm. rather than uh, treating your personality like it's a Rubik's Cube that's they have to solve in order to get it out of the way of your vagina. <laughs> that's, that's one way of putting it, yeah. That's right. And Rubik's Cubes are hard. So, I mean, like people forget that <laughs> yeah. part of this as though. Like let's give some credit. I <laughs> uh, probably shouldn't. <laughs> but, yeah. I, um, okay, look. I know. <laughs> Good. Um, we've gone for almost half an hour, and we've ne- okay. We're going to talk about your book choice. So let's do that. Your book choices. The good thing is the the show. The title will say your book choice. It's not going to come as a surprise. But what is your book uh, choice for to this show? Okay, I have chosen the Thirteen Clocks, which is a children's book by James Thurber. Um, mainly because I don't have a favorite book. <laughs> it's one of those things about enjoying uncertainty or, or not wanting to um, be – I feel like when you say you have a favorite book, um, you're saying that there's something about that book that is integral to who you are as a person maybe. I feel like a favorite book is a is a form of identity, which is probably why you use it as an intro for this podcast because yeah. it is – but I'd, I've I've always been wary of of having in the places where I have a choice of choosing an identity. You know, obviously there are some identities that are integral to me and and things that I can't step back from. But there's a great Paul Graham article called "Holding Your Identities Loosely," mm-hmm. which is uh, on the premise that if you say, for example, "I don't eat meat," rather than "I am a vegetarian." When you end up in this a discussion or an argument, you can deal with it. Uh, you, 
it's not about who you are, it's about the idea itself. Mm. Uh, and so I've always felt that that article when I read it articulated something that I had off, always felt, which is when people say, what are you? I don't, I don't like to say what I am. I like to say maybe what I'm doing or what I'm interested in. But like, don't put me in a box, man. It, it sounds like such an aggressive way of saying it. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like to reduce uh, the complexities of human existence to a series of neat categories. That said, uh, the Thirteen Clocks and the Wonderful O is a book that I have given many copies away of, and I return to regularly, and I like a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. So, among other books, um, I, I think it's it's delightful. It's a- and it, it's it's one of several. Let's put it that way. Can we at least say that? That's okay. Yes, it's one of a rotating carousel of favorites. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. Look, I'm not gonna. I I, I definitely don't, didn't go into this thinking everyone has a single one always because obviously it can depend on your mood or whatever. I'm not forever gonna be like, oh, there's Alice. You know what her favorite book is? <laughs> the Thirteen Clocks, if you know what I mean. It's like, what's that? <laughs> um, but I, like you said, I think regard like it's the classic thing almost by getting people to say pick one and i know it could have been on another day some other one it still reveals something i guess yes. and that's the whole idea of this um because you were you were tossing up between this and uh venetian which was venetia by georgia Heyer, oh. <laughs> which is a I, romance novel a period romance novel written in the 1930s uh yeah. in which the two characters it's not you know it's nothing worthy that but the thing about it uh, that i loved so much is that I read it in my early teens and the two lead characters woo one another via the medium of poetry. So they'll quote snippets of poetry to one another and cap one another's quotes, recognize the poetry. And for me, that book opened up so much other stuff, you know, because there would be, oh, had me but world enough in time. And then I'd look up that poem and be like, wow, that's an incredible poem. Or, you know, come let us kiss, kiss and part. Nay, I have done, you get no more of me. What a great, what a great sonnet. Um, mm. You have all these incredible, uh, that book I like as a, even though it is a very silly book, it's a very lighthearted book. It's a romance novel. It's a genre fiction. For me, it was a, a key to opening up vast numbers of other beautiful words. All right, that is that's a that's a beautiful reason to have chosen that one as well, <laughs> as an introduction to uh, I guess poetry and all that. Although, so I, I haven't read I've, I to go back to the thirteen clocks, but this relates to it as well. So I haven't, I haven't read either of these ones. Um, so I was looking it up online just to get some grounding, so we didn't go into this me completely blind and you having to give a dot point of the whole thing. But it seems like uh, the writing. <laughs> Of 13 Clocks, that's what got mentioned as being especially poetic in how it's delivered? Yes. That- it is a book that is almost a poem. It is it is worth reading out loud to somebody, I think. And it's a children's book-ish. It's a children's book. It's a very short book. Uh, and it's just got this great deliciousness about the language. There's this real... Um, dense nutritious pleasure in the writing of it that makes reading it and and reading it out loud particularly a joy just an unalloyed joy yeah yeah it just the, the shape of it in the mouth as it comes it's just it flows beautifully yeah and it's so yeah so again very light very silly but very 
lovely. Very delightful. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, because like, I mean, you, you mentioned this as well. And I've actually, it's hard for me to kind of, I've seen you do comedy a lot of times now, but language is obviously a big part of. Well, I think I think a lot of comedians would be loving language, but that is something you very much enjoy and play on wor- uh, words and how they flow. Right, that's a part of what you yes, love. Yes, in- for me, I would have been I would have been a poet <laughs> had there ever been any money in it. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the rare <laughs> the rare arts which just has no money in it, isn't it? <laughs> Poetry. Well, at the at the univer- at university, I you know because my mum was a, an incredible poet. And I wrote poetry as a teenager, as we we booky nerds do often. Um, and I went to poetry readings at university, and I found them so appallingly pretentious that I couldn't bring myself to enter that world. That's, they were just so, yeah. so ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> they were just every cliche university poetry reading you've like. You've ever seen? Is just, that what it was like? Yes, everyone was so smug and self-conscious, and there was a voice that they all did when they read the poems, <laughs> and you know what I mean—just berets and scarves everywhere. Yes, or yes, yeah, certainly the ghost of berets and scarves in the air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's that's uh, that is hilarious. I, I, it's funny you saying that because I was actually discussing some recently um, in relation to philosophy, and. It's. I kind of feel the same thing. Like sometimes when I see uh, something like philosophy, because I actually was talking about how I went to philosophy class once and went to like two classes, and I was like, "What is this? <laughs> this is just such sophistry and like talking so deep into something, but like in a really not specific, like not in any way which reflects the real world." And I feel like that's. It sounds like kind of the similar thing where it's like you see these things which can be so much more, but when it's put into this space, it just almost turns into an act of like. Showing off how smart you are, I guess, or something like that. Yeah, it takes all it takes all of the spontaneity and joy out of it, and it turns it into a, a formula or a competition or something something very coagulated and congealed and unpleasant to the touch. Yeah. So you saw that, and you're like, "I'm going to do comedy." They're, they're they're much nicer people there. That's an industry. 
<laughs> well, comedy came later later for me, but that basically was the thing. I did it because I was bad at it and because I had friends who were doing it and I thought it would be interesting to learn how to get good at something I was bad at and because there were nice people around me doing it. All right. And on top of that, obviously, it is still very much a word and like maybe not poetry, but it's very much that. That's what it's all about. It's the right? minimum viable product for getting an idea from my head into your head, I think. That's very, very good way of putting that, actually, yeah. That's <laughs> it. The least things in the way, sort of, apart from – although, you see, that's a okay, – it's another slight tangent, but I, 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 it's something I've taken a long time to realize, and this actually probably ties into the whole idea of, um, like, the, the medium versus the message, but if specifically, I think I went into it thinking, like, almost like – uh, maybe it comes from a privilege point of view or something as well, but like not being aware of how much how you look and sound impacts the words being said. If you know what I mean? That's very interesting. Yeah. Yes. like Because that's something which I, when I went in, I don't think I realized how much that mattered. So sometimes I'll be saying things which maybe I'd seen other people do and was fine and I'll do a very like quite similar to that. And it would come across completely different. I'm like, why is this happening? Because I still have good intentions. But what I don't realize is that me saying things with the way I look and sound can sometimes, without appropriate framing to take into account how people are looking at me, can come that across the wrong way. Ethos, uh, in terms of Aristotelian rhetoric, that's ethos. Uh, that is who you are and uh, the way that, that that who you are shapes how what you say means anything. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Ethos. That's that. I knew that. Yeah. yeah that's Greek. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's, I'm now more defensive now. But that, that is something which I didn't learn. Like it took me a long time to, because I was like, oh, because one of the things I liked about the concept of stand up kind of, but this, this is such a almost, yeah, someone living in a bubble without any interaction with the reality. But like, I was like, oh, yeah, it's just words. And then you say the words and the people looking at the words and whatever. And if you put an inflection on it, or whatever, but no more than that. But it's like, no, no, when you are a whole package with everything you do and say. And like, so people engage with you in that sense. They're not like compartmentalizing, I guess, one part of you. They're looking at you as a whole. And I think that took me a really long time to appreciate that it's, Yes, it's minimum viable. <laughs> like, what'd you say? Minimum viable delivery to get from yeah. me to you. But there's still like a lot more there than I think I first thought. Well, you know well what it's I mean. that, that there are, there, it is not just the words that communicate the idea. So, yeah. you, which is incredibly important. That's an incredibly important part of all human communication. You know, I said I loved you. <laughs> is a very different, <laughs> you know, the, the, of course, the way that you communicate something and who you are to the other person uh, or to the to the audience and who you appear to be and how you present yourself and how you deliver the words. You can say something in an apologetic way that makes it acceptable, which if you delivered it flat would be unacceptable, for example. Right. Is this, is this actually, sorry, I was, I was actually talking about myself, but is this something that you've, like you've come across it all? You've ever had anything like this? Absolutely. When I started out, it was sort of Napoleon Dynamite era. There was a real fad for awkward comedy, people doing that sort of uh, shoulders up and in, hands uh, down and facing outwards, Ooh, that thing, <laughs> Ooh, what am I even doing? And I couldn't, it, I couldn't get laughs doing that no matter how well the joke was written because people felt sorry for me. So right. I 
developed a stage persona that's sort of feet slightly further than hip width apart, chest out, uh, shoulders back, chin up slightly, um, power stance, mildly aggressive posture, uh, because I needed to display strength on stage, which friends of mine who were boys didn't have to do because there was an implicit assumption that there was that strength or authority from them that didn't happen when I got on stage. Adam Richards, the comedian, um, I remember having this conversation with him because he gives advice to young men going into comedy, mainly men who are overweight, about how they should dress. It's one of the little services that he provides for the community. Uh, he, he says that, you know, they should wear a button button-down shirt or a nice neat clothing. What they should dress as is neutral because then people can, you know, they don't, they're not conflicted about who they are or trying to read mixed messages. So he says, you know, neat trousers, proper shoes, button-up shirt. And I said to him, well, what's neutral for women? Because his premise is anything you wear on stage is a costume, anything you bring on stage is a prop, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that part of it I c can understand. And so I said, what's neutral for a woman? And he said, well... That's the hard thing because women in art are already an object. It's impossible. When you bring your body on stage, you're already making a statement. <sighs> yeah. I mean, like, I think, yeah, and no, I definitely agree. Uh, it's it, it, like, I mean, I think, I think there, I was, I thought I was going to say there's no such thing as neutral almost in any circumstance anyway, because, uh, mm. but especially, yeah, when it comes to female and, I guess that attitude towards it, they're going to be, it's going to be judged far more um, than for men. Yeah, obviously, obviously then th there is a way that we, we sort of see bodies as choices, uh, mm. whether we would like to or not. But you, you could have three or four different men wearing the same clothes and you would, they would be presenting more or less the same message, whether they're right, different right. sizes, whether one's muscular, whether one's thin, whether, whether one's fat. They can wear a business suit and they look like business people, for example. Mm. But if you say, if you have a, a pencil skirt and a button-up shirt uh, for a lady, if you are, if you're a curvaceous lady, you look like you're trying to be sexy, whether you are or not. Right. For okay, example, yeah, yeah. your professionalism is not judged by the clothes as much as it is how how your body, um, how your body imbues those clothes with a message. Right. So you okay. have to be very conscious of what your what your body is saying when you're on stage so you can either lean into that message or counterbalance that message with your clothing choices hmm. to bring yourself to something approaching neutral for an audience, if that's what you want. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. That's <laughs> what I was trying to understand because, like, yeah, I guess whatever whatever that neutral means, I suppose. Um, yeah, actually, I, I, this, uh, I read this book. Have you read um, How to Be a Woman by Catelyn Moran? I have only read a couple of chapters of it. I read it at a friend's place, so I don't have a copy of it. It's a, it's, it's a great book. I Yeah, uh, gives a perspective on a whole bunch of stuff, which I probably am not very privy to. Um, but it mentions in that one, which I really liked, was uh, it talks about uh, clothing and uh, for like women versus men. And she's she's saying is in, not everyone falls into this category anyway. She always very much puts in all these caveats with everything she says when she's talking of her voice and her experience. She's not saying mm. that reflects all women, but she's saying is in for certain groups. When she's talking about the cliche that some guys will be like, oh, uh, you know, women take so long to pick what to wear and stuff. And she's like, well, the issue with that is that what guys don't seem to realize is that what 
a woman is deciding when she's putting on her clothing is who does she want to be seen as today? Um, like it's so it's that's why there's indecision there because it's like do I want to be seen as mean or like relaxed or sexy or business like whatever like that's a whole character which you have to choose every morning when you put in your clothing versus guys can just do whatever and I was like that's funny because I never ever thought that before like I've never even considered yes. that as a thing and of course that is in part uh a disability for men it's not it's not just that it makes life for women harder it may you know men have limited wardrobe choices and <laughs> therefore male self-expression can be limited for particularly for men who want to express themselves through their clothing it can be more difficult for them mm. uh, than 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 for women like things cut both ways quite often um, not, not that I want to underestimate how hard it is to be me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I heard you loud and clear. We've got it tough as well. I'm with you, Alice. Yes. <laughs> I knew it. I goddamn knew it. <laughs> We've got it tough too. No, I know. It, it, it does go both ways. And it is that expression side is the part that gets a uh, – I see. I, I see that you're, you are very good at the dialectic <laughs> angle. It's like, have you – but yes, you're saying this, but have you explored this side of it as well? I like that. <laughs> it's a compulsion. We, it's not always been good for my life. That, But on the other hand, what do we think about this? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, that's terrible. But where are the nuances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. But isn't it good to feel the terribleness? <laughs> um, <laughs> But okay, guess we've got yes. But thirteen clocks, anyways. <laughs> Let's talk about yes, that some more. Yes, the language is glorious. The villain is fabulous. The, I mean, you have two villains. You have the cold, aggressive duke, uh, and I think he's introduced as being um, six foot four and forty six, and even colder than he thought he was. Oh, oh, that's a good. That's a good description. Which is, I think, it just has got this fabulous rhythm, and then the 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 worst villain, I guess, or the 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 monster of the piece is called the Total, and the Total is a blob of glup that makes a sound like rabbits screaming and smells of old unopened rooms. It moves like monkeys and like madness. Oh, this this is sounding. Very well written already. I got to be honest. That's have you it's memorized just, those, or do you have the book in front of you? No, no. I, I, I mean, I've memorized them because they, they stick in your head, mm. um, and that's what is so delicious about it. I, you know, I feel like those are good examples of of what I like about the book, which is this real luscious pleasure in the language. Mm. And again, it's such a short, sweet treat that you can you can read it whenever you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think I've I've got a a nephew uh, who's eight and a niece who's seven. So this sounds like it might slot perfect. Well that a is a perfect them. age. Oh, that's good. I actually, I, I I'll do that next time they I see them. I might actually go and get it. Yeah, I'm always trying to find a book for them to share the joy in. Um, I just realized <laughs> that we haven't even actually even done a description of what the book exactly. So because it is just like a. Uh, fairy tale sort of thing i guess you'd say is that right yeah something like that it's like a, a novella maybe a poetic novella long form poem short book fairy tale something <laughs> you really crossed like lots of different ways to describe that <laughs> it yeah comes maybe in that's paper why i and like on it because it's difficult to define um yeah 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 but it's like a like i guess yeah but it's got like a duke and like a does it like a 
fit. Like, so there's a prince, a, um, a minstrel, uh, a minstrel who is a prince disguised, Zorn of Zorna, mm. and uh, uh, the princess Saralinda, who is the niece of the cold, aggressive duke, and she's the only warm thing in his castle. And the, oh. the duke lives in a castle with 13 stopped clocks, and princes of all of all sorts come and, and try and win the hand of, of fair Saralinda, and he sets them impossible tasks, and then they he feeds them to his geese. Um, <laughs> if they fail, or d- sometimes they just disappear. And so this minstrel appears and is set a task, um, and then away with the story, really. Yeah, yeah. But it's not really about the story. It is, it's, it's mainly about the language because it's all very sort of light and silly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, here's, a, here's an idea. Here's a dangerous idea for it. Is any story ever really about the story? <laughs> is anything good, <laughs> any good book or whatever, is it ever really just about the story? Well, I mean, as as you've said, it's difficult for anything to be just about the language or, or just about the story. I think mm. I think there are books that I will read that aren't particularly well written that I will read for the story. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's you know trashy fantasy that I love because it has a galloping narrative, um, or or whatever that happens to be. And sometimes writing can be too good; it can distract you from the story because it's so dense or elusive or whatever that happens to be. Right? Yeah, and that's true as well. I think it's always it's <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. It, it, speaking of writing like that, Salman Rushdie. Yes. I, I read Midnight's Children and like I kind of get like that years ago I read that but I I've, I remember picking up once and reading like the first four pages of the Satanic Verses and I was just like I didn't know I could read English and be this confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you want then is something like Harun and the Sea of Stories which is Salman Rushdie's children's book that he wrote for his his child and that's a real sweet treat as well. Okay. I don't know if I should be insulted by you saying that to me, but I'll. I'll no, I, I, in terms of your 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 nieces and nephews or small children in your vicinity, oh, right. yeah, that's yeah. a that's a good one. For that them. is a really good one. Yeah, delightful. Oh. Okay, I can add that in as well. Um, <laughs> a little heavy-handed on the metaphors, but Salman Rushdie always is. I feel like that's kind of his thing, isn't it? Yes, he doesn't mm-hmm. really hide. <laughs> he doesn't try to leave it up to a subtext. Sometimes I think it's all very much right there. <laughs> In the text, <laughs> super text. I don't even know what the word would be. Um, I uh, the the only the other reason I'm finding it interesting because when I was looking up these that book, Thirteen Clocks, but then uh, hey, you mentioned the other one as well, um, which now it turns out you liked it for a different reason. Venetia, as you mentioned at the start mm-hmm. of the podcast, many many topics ago. Um, mm-hmm. I as I was looking at both, it seemed like both because even though Venetia is a romance novel, it sounded like it was a bit like more than the regular romance novels? Is that right? Or is it just kind of just very much a trashy romance novel? No, it is. Uh, Georgette Heyer, I, I wrote my undergraduate English thesis on the the way that narrative uh, can perform as rhetoric in genre fiction in the way that she writes a romance novel because you are, as the reader, familiar with the tropes of romance novels, she can just basically brush past them she she it's not heavy-handed at all it's almost 
this this kind of structural underpinning of the plot moves the plot along in the background and she can focus on things she's more interested in, which is often sort of really lovely dialogue or side characters or um, sort of – and she was very assiduous when she wrote these historical romances about her research as well. So they're historically very accurate. No one's using a phrase the day before it came into circulation. No one's wearing anything that they wouldn't normally wear. No one's doing anything anachronistic. So – I would say it's probably better written than your regular romance thing. And uh, the reason that I wrote my undergrad thesis on her specifically was because I had read in a number of different places by a number of different incredibly intelligent women, like Antonia Fraser or whatever, that, that Georgette Heyer was their guilty pleasure. Right. And I thought, why guilty? You know, why are there so many smart women who love these and yet feel ashamed? Or or at least feel the need to say that they're ashamed. Well, if so many people love them, there must be something good about them. But, yeah, Mm. why do they feel the need to feel ashamed? Why do they feel that the thing that is good about them is bad? And uh, that that was a really fascinating area of research. That is interesting because, like, I I mean – you're just saying like straight away my head goes to the concept because like I'm I'm very much I've I've an interesting attitude towards basically anything of anyone's. I, I reserve the right to completely destroy whatever they like in terms of for my personal take, as in being like this sucks because of this and this and this, but I'll defend to the death anyone liking whatever they want, if you know <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, like that's very much my attitude towards any like as in if you like something the only thing I ask is that you don't feel annoyed if I then turn around and say I don't like it because of this and this because you should be able to be like well I'd still like it or whatever that's kind of how I stand on most things if someone says uh, yeah if somebody says oh no I don't like green apples you don't go you're wrong You go, oh, that's interesting. I do. Well, that's what I mean. But so I guess maybe the Greeks, like the the the, the proclaiming part of me, I'll put it that way, probably better, um, likes to go <laughs> make a bold declarative statement, but I've never, never mean it as an – actually, what you're saying at the start, it's never an attack on anyone's identity ever. It's always just about the thing. But I think sometimes, again, maybe I confuse by going so strongly on something, even though I don't – like I'm just enjoying rhetoric almost when I – Say, proclaim things like that, um, the person might have it more tied into their identity than I first realize, I guess. Well, particularly um, if it is a, a, a favorite of something, then it becomes a, a central, yeah, identity yeah, yeah. point. Yeah, I guess. And that's uh, so that I, to tie this all back to what I was like, yeah, exactly. But like, as in, so when you talk about how this romance novel with someone's guilty pleasure, my mind straight away goes to without judgment when someone likes Twilight. Or something like that, and mm. people feel this need to make fun of that, and maybe there are a lot of reasons to. But then at the same time, you're like, well, I mean, if you like it, you like it, kind of. I guess um, for that particular, yeah. And it thing. is an in- it is incredibly good at what it does, which is it articulates, particularly the first Twilight book, articulates very precisely the confusion and despair and overwrought quality of teen girl emotional states. Having been a teenage girl, it is bang on. <laughs> Just everything <laughs> is so extreme and intense and there's this thing happening and you're really – it's probably about sex but you're not quite sure and you can't admit it. To, like it's – everything is the biggest thing and the most dramatic thing. It's all life and death. It all feels super intense and you know it's not and then you feel like an idiot and then why don't you have any self-esteem and then who is that guy? Like it's it's – <laughs> 
very confusing and overwrought and her writing, which is confusing and overwrought, is actually <laughs> an incredibly accurate and precise communic- communicative mechanism for that state. Wow, okay. that you know, you know, I've never heard that before and that makes absolute perfect sense. That makes such perfect <laughs> sense that that is what that is. Like that's the appeal of it. All right, okay. You've taught me something there. So I guess I, <laughs> to tie that to, again, what we're talking about um, – would you? What would you say is the element of that that maybe is in something like Venetia, when you're saying that I, for that has that for the guilty pleasure part of it, or the guilt of the pleasurable part of it? Um, it's that it is a genre fiction. So when you pick it up, you know that it will end happily, and that these two main characters will um, live happily ever after. And and there's something about the predictability of, of that that I think makes people who dislike genre fiction feel that it's a kind of an intellectual cowardice on the part of the person reading it. It's comfort reading. It's um, not challenging. It's not um, enlightening or expanding. Yeah, um, it's, they sound it's like they like nice po- and- poetry at university. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's nice and fun and sweet and satisfying. And I mm. think that there is a kind of a – false or at least partly false dichotomy there that has been mm. created between things that are easy and things that are good and that that it, if it's easy it can't be good or if it's nice it can't be good that your medicine should taste bad and if it doesn't there's something some sort of indulgence or failing possibly this is all coming from like, like judeo-christian guilt stuff i'm not entirely sure but the idea that if it if it's delicious it can't be nourishing that the you know things that are good for you have to be hard or unpleasant and i think that it is important to have things that are hard or unpleasant i think you know resilience is important thing to cultivate and that you ought to be challenging yourself but there is great value in the delightful and it mm. doesn't necessarily mean if something's easy that doesn't necessarily mean it's not incredibly well crafted, incredibly intricately and delicately and beautifully done, and and the exact right emphasis in the exact right place is its own art form above and beyond things that are you know James Joyce wading thigh deep through fecal imagery like. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hundred percent agree, and it's funny you saying that because you were talking about Venetia, but I, it sounds like again from reading the reviews and even your description, you could apply the same thing to Thirteen Clocks, where like maybe some would put it in the category of light because it's a kids' book or something like that. But you're yeah, it's like, a fairy tale. It's a children's book. You know, it's going to end happily. You mm. sort of know what the form is, and there's a sense there that you know there's no journey in in the text because. It's predictable, and mm. but of course it's completely unpredictable. The language of it is so surprising throughout, and that it's almost like having that format or the formula out of the way, having that yeah 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 we all know what the story is. Let's talk about how we get there, the mm. journey to it, the 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 process becomes the art form rather than the story itself. And so actually by by existing in that realm of like cliches, I guess, or whatever, if you want to say it that way, yep. but structure that everyone knows, um, it frees you from anyone focusing on those points. So it actually makes everyone, yeah, focus on that 
on the other things, I guess. So, yeah. yeah, and then it's what you do with that rather than what you you know what it yeah. is that you're doing. Yeah, there is. I'm finding just because like it seems it's funny that of the two you're saying you can't pick between everything and everything reflects something different. But of the two that you were going for, <laughs> Venetia and Thirteen Clocks, they both seem to occupy that same space of sitting within the familiar to then show, I guess, the unfamiliar or to show the art within something which people take for granted almost? Yes, the surprising, I think. The thing about it that I like is that they are, at least on the face of it, incredibly predictable, but in reality they're incredibly rich and incredibly surprising and very delightful. Mm. And I guess that that, that contrast, because like obviously surprising can be anything, but in this case the surprise is within the context of, I guess, the expected and the regular, like something you've seen a million times before, and here's someone not even doing it different. Like, in, they're still like, it's funny just because I had a discussion with someone just a few days ago. They were talking about a uh, like postmodern fiction, which is like, uh, like, uh, if on a winter's night, a traveler and things of that ilk, I guess, where it's mm. like they're just completely breaking form and doing something completely new and out there and crazy. But in this instance, actually, they're not doing anything new in terms of breaking out of the confines, I guess, of what's there, but they're just showing how beautiful it can be. Yeah, yeah, or they're breaking out in the directions that you don't expect them to break out. Uh, mm. Is that you know the value of creative limitation I think is is underrated if you think about if we go back to poetry maybe I think you can sometimes do more with a sonnet or a, a haiku or a strict form than with free verse which can be incomprehensibly self-indulgent. <laughs> 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 yeah okay that's a good way of putting it incomprehensibly self like it's in so self-indulgent it's incomprehensible that is a fantastic way of putting that it's like i just i can't see this through the fog of smug that's emanating from it it's i'm <laughs> gagging on that <laughs> but yeah that's true like is in having the limitation and i mean that's a, that's a pretty well known thing at this point like as in yeah it's like working within a form gives you the freedom to then actually express yourself in ways and I think even from the point of like writing or being creative on that end, it's like I struggle when it's like pick something, do whatever, <laughs> write whatever. It's like I prefer actually my brain can focus better when there is some sort of structure that it's working within, I guess. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. But I guess uh, – I, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to add before we tie this thing off about the books? Any other insights you felt you've drawn from a – actually, I do always ask at the end of these shows, do, do you felt like you've <laughs> gotten any fresh insight onto um, – onto the work but uh yeah so i don't know anything else you want to add on to this i don't think i'd necessarily drawn the line between the two of them i thought that i liked them for different reasons but maybe i do like them for the same reasons or similar reasons so that's nice to know yeah yeah i just thought it was interesting because both obviously i guess you're saying like again not to say this in a negative way but like the junk food element or like the, the 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 guilty pleasure element of them both being like they're not heavy tomes you know it's something which you can pick up and enjoy um so maybe right, maybe that's a reflection of life right now, and what kind of what you're leaning towards? Yeah, um, yeah, entirely possible. <laughs> yeah, what's a favorite book at this moment? Uh, it's kind of ones which sit in that kind of area rather than something a bit more difficult. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Bring that's, you joy. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of uh, the end of it there. So uh, I don't know anything else we haven't kind of plugged or talked about before we finish this off. Guess no, go check. I feel- 
Just yeah. go check out Venetia by Georgette Heyer and uh, The 13 Clocks by James Thurber. <laughs> exactly. And, and of course, we've got Savage on Amazon Prime with uh, Alice Fraser and then all your stuff on uh, yeah, my, uh, the podcast. Yeah, a good central point are- for that is uh, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. I have all of my stuff on the main page there. Perfect. I'll, ch- I'll chuck that link in the, in the description. Um, sounds good. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on, Alice. You've been an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.